What a day, what a week, what a month, what a year, what a life, what a life. What a day, what a week, what a month, what a year, what a life, what a life. Even after all this time, the sun never said to the earth, you owe me. Imagine if we had a love like that, we'd brighten up the whole sky. Dallas, you wanted an intro song. There you go. And welcome back to Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. My name is Daniel Rogers, and I am so excited to be your host for today and to continue a conversation that we had over a month ago. It has been a long time, my friends. It's been a very long time. I took four classes uh, this semester to finish up my bachelor's in Bible and ministry from Emory University. And in doing that, uh, I had to spend a whole lot of time the past month writing papers and uh, taking final exams and finishing up my reading for my class. And so it took a lot more time than I expected. So I had to step away from the podcast just a little bit. I did a couple of interviews for you, but besides that, I've really had to focus on finishing out my schooling. But now I am done and I don't plan on going back for my graduate work until the fall of 2024. And so I'm going to rest for a bit, focus on hanging out with you guys and gals and talking about the scripture. Uh, then I planned on doing an episode not too long ago and also finishing recording my audiobook. Uh, but when I got back from North Carolina for Discovering Renewal, I was sick, as you heard maybe last week. And that was no fun at all. But here we are. Here we are. I'm going to talk about the afterlife. When I left off from the last episode on the afterlife, I told you that I would talk to you about fire, outer darkness, hell, and hell. But I want to talk a moment about universalism. Because I made a comment in the last episode that I would not be confident enough to, uh, to affirm a universalist position. I will say, though, that I would classify myself as a hopeful universalist. And the reason why is because I think that's a, that's a very biblical position that only takes just one verse to point out uh, why I would even use that language. And it comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul tells, his, uh, Paul tells his friend Timothy to pray for all people because he says that God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If that's God's desire then that's my desire as well. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why I maintain that position a little bit later. I, I, I'm not sold on conditional immortality. If you've read my book, How a 25-Year-Old Learned He Wasn't the Only One Going to Heaven, then you know that I, I held that position for quite a bit. In fact, Kevin and I kind of workshopped some ideas on that together uh, when I was first starting to hang out with him. And one of the resources he pointed me to, of course, was Edward Fudge, and the book and the uh, the movie, I should say, Hell and Mr. Fudge, which is a which is an excellent movie. But I sort of became disillusioned with this idea that instead of punishing people forever, God punishes people for a short amount of time, and then just takes them out back and shoots them. <laughs> to me, I understand why someone would take the position. I mean, I've I've done I've done the work and 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 the arguments and. You know, looking at the eternal nature of the fire uh, that was consuming the burning bush versus the fire that consumes uh, in, you know, like Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 13. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm not satisfied with that position 
more from a, a philosophical standpoint, I suppose. I still have problems reconciling that view with who I see God to be. I might talk about that a little bit. But first, let's get into the, some of this other stuff. Fire, out of darkness, and hell. Uh, first one I need to do is kind of set the stage for this a little bit. All right. Um, if you've listened to my episodes on Bible prophecy, then you know that I look at Bible prophecy as primarily uh, concerning the events leading up to the fall of Jerusalem, and then including the fall of Jerusalem. I say primarily concerning because there are some things that I believed were fulfilled in the first century, but have everlasting applications for us today. For example, Revelation 21 and 22, the leaves of the tree of life have been given for the healing of the nations and things like that. And and if you want to get into all that, uh, you can go listen to earlier podcasts, especially the ones that I did uh, as an interview with Kevin and Lee uh, back, goodness, that was at the start of the podcast, wasn't it? So back in 2020, I guess is when that was. But anyways, that information is out there for you to listen to if you're, if you're, if you feel so inclined. But I say that to say this. I believe, and I'm going to show you why in a second, that the language, especially having to do with with fire and outer darkness, um, has to do with the tribulation leading up to the fall of Jerusalem and then including the fall of Jerusalem itself. I believe it to be a, a covenantal, I should say, a covenantal judgment on uh, Israel for rejecting the Messiah and persecuting the saints. And I'm going to lay all that out here for you real quick. Um, First, a few points about afterlife in general. When we think about the afterlife, uh, and we start to look at passages that have to do with the afterlife, what we find is there are very little, there are very few passages, I should say, that have to do with this idea of an afterlife. In the Old Testament, I mean. Because when you read the Old Testament, there are some passages that say that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were uh, gathered to their fathers, right? And, you know, then there's some questions about the afterlife in like the book of Ecclesiastes, for example. Um, And then the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, uh, written by the narrator, you know, does say that the Spirit returns to the God who gave it and things like that. But besides a few scattered references there's little to be said about an afterlife, right? Most of the blessings and cursings that, that are found in the Old Testament, the lists of things, you do this, you get this, you don't do that, you get that, have to do with this life. Uh, famine, drought, pestilence, uh, nations coming in, the carrying in the captivity. You read Deuteronomy 32, you read the end of Leviticus. It doesn't really have anything in there about if you do this, you'll live forever. If you do this, you'll suffer eternal damnation or eternal annihilation or something like that. It most of the time has to do with Israel's relationship to the land. So even in passages like Isaiah and Zechariah uh, and Malachi that talk about fire and outer darkness and punishment and judgment, you read the context there. In many, many cases, it's about some nation coming to destroy them, some nation coming to wage war with them. And it's in this language of fire and outer darkness typically denotes something to do with some kind of national judgment, 
right? So like, for instance, Matthew chapter 8. This is one that I think that we talked about uh, in the first episode. But in Matthew chapter 8, he says, uh, Jesus says in verse 10, Truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and will take their place at the banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom, now, now who's the heirs of the kingdom, to whom belongs the promises of God? Well, it would be, in from Jesus' perspective, that would be Israel, right? He says the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is simply talking about being in the kingdom versus not being in the kingdom. This isn't doesn't seem to be talking about a, an afterlife experience. It's, it's talking about the Gentiles' inclusion in the kingdom and Israel's exclusion from the kingdom because of their rejection of the Messiah. Let me show you another one of these passages. This is in Matthew chapter 21. It's going to be a similar thing here. There's a parable of the wicked tenants that's uh, given in verses 33 and following. It goes like this. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. Then he leased it to, to tenants and went away. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Then he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to himself, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw, out, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? The Pharisees answer, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus responds, have you never read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, here's the important part, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces its fruits. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized who was speaking about them. What Jesus does in this parable isn't talking about, he doesn't talk about an afterlife judgment. He talks about who is, who is in the kingdom of heaven. And for the Pharisees and Sadducees, because of their continual rejection of the prophets, because of the rejection of the Son, they're excluded from the kingdom of God in this parable. And you hear their uh, response that in this story, they expect the man to put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants. And Jesus basically says, you guys are onto something there because this, is, this all comes from the idea that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Um, you know, citing the Old Testament text there, Psalm 118, one of the most quoted texts in the New Testament. This idea of Jesus being this uh, foundational stone. So even in this passage, correlating this with Matthew 8, being thrown into outer darkness doesn't necessarily have to do with an afterlife experience. It primarily has to do with one's relationship to the kingdom of heaven. Because in the kingdom of heaven, it is light. There is light, the light of God. Outside of the kingdom of heaven, there is darkness. This is the same language John uses to talk about one's relationship with God in uh, 1 John chapter 1, right? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, etc. 
and God has no fellowship with darkness. This is the idea. Is it's being in a covenantal relationship with God. It's not talking about the afterlife, at least from my perspective. In Matthew 22, we have the same thing. But notice this, though. L- listen, listen to this parable. <clears throat> Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. This idea here of a of a city on fire, again, is it's a parable, right? But most scholars, when they read this passage, they think of it as Matthew alluding to, of course, you know, citing Jesus, but Matthew alluding to the fall of Jerusalem. What, what would happen in AD 70 when their city was literally burned down? This is how they would interpret this passage as being a reference to the fall of Jerusalem. And so even here, this language of, of a city on fire and them being cast out has to do with their relationship to God in covenant. Since they rejected the Son of God, they are uh, not in fellowship with God, and their condition is described as a burned-down city or as living in outer darkness or with weeping and gnashing of teeth. The same thing is true all throughout the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist talks about uh, you know, being baptized with Holy Spirit and with fire. In, uh, he, he talks about how the axe is lying at the root of the tree. And every branch that doesn't bear good fruit will be cast into the fire. But in, in the context, he's talking about wrath that was going to come on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the people in Jerusalem if they didn't repent and be added to the kingdom of God. This, this is the theme throughout the New Testament. All right. So when we talk about fire, when we talk about outer darkness, those are the primary things in mind. Now let's think about the word hell. <clears throat> In the King James Version, which many of us were raised on, the word hell comes from three Greek words, uh, Gehenna, Tartarus, and Hades, or Hades. When we think about these words in modern translations, though, only one of those continues to be translated hell, and that is the word Gehenna. The word Gehenna is only used by two different people in the New Testament. One is Jesus, the other is James. If you recall, James uh, was writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, which I don't believe is a reference to spiritual Israel. I believe it's a reference to the Jews, uh, the Jewish Christians over whom James was an elder of the church in Jerusalem. In fact, chapter 2 talks about if someone comes into your assembly, which is the Greek word synagogue, if someone comes into your synagogue and you give them a, a better seat than the poor guy, then you know, you're being a hypocrite. Um, so he's writing the Jewish people, and Jesus is talking to Jewish people. And they're the only two people in the New Testament to use the word Gehenna. Nobody else does. When Paul's talking about faithfulness or unfaithfulness, when even John in Revelation, the word hell is never used. The word Gehenna is never used. Imagery of the lake of fire and whatnot is used, but Gehenna is never used. So what's Gehenna? Some people say it's a trash dump outside Jerusalem. Um, Historically, they could go either way on that. There's not... There's not any early, early references to Gehenna being a trash heap outside of Jerusalem. 
Uh, but what we do know is that Gehenna was the place where they would offer up their children to be sacrificed. That's where they would cause their children to be pa- passed through the fire. So it was a cursed place because of that association. And so you would see why Jesus would use this language of, of Gehenna, the fiery hell, to call to their memory the times when their fathers literally sacrificed their children in the valley of Hinnom, in, in Gehenna. And so Gehenna is used to evoke very specific imagery to Jesus's Jewish audience. It's never used by Peter. It's never used by Paul. It's never used by Jude. It's not even used by Jude. It's used by James writing to Jewish Christians and Jesus talking to Jewish people. And I believe that when you look at the uses of Gehenna uh, in the New Testament, um, especially in the teaching of Jesus, I think it most likely, again, has reference to the impending judgment that would happen at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. For example, Matthew chapter 10. This is one of the major passages. Uh, the, the specific text is Matthew 10, 28, right? But look at this, Matthew 10. And as we read this, keep in, the, keep in mind the theme of persecution and vindication of the martyrs that we read in texts like Matthew 21 and Matthew 22. So in Matthew 10, he, he says that he's sending them out like sheep into the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of them, he says, for they'll hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. A couple things about this. First off, this passage is often called the limited commission, but the apostles didn't experience this kind of treatment until after the resurrection. And they didn't testify to the Gentiles until after the resurrection. He says in verse 19, When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for, uh, for what you are to say will be given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who is speaking through you. Siblings will, display, will, will betray sibling to death, and a father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But notice what he says. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What's he talking about here? Well, read verse 23. When they persecute you in this town, flee to the next. For truly, I tell you, you will not have finished going through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. In other words, yes, you're going to be persecuted. But before you disciples finish fleeing through all the towns of Israel, the Son of Man is going to come. The Son of Man is going to come and save you, in other words, at the time of the end from this persecution. And this is why he says to them, in this later passage, um, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and uh, soul and body in Gehenna. What he's saying is, yes, they may be able to destroy you, but they may be able to kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. What's going to happen to them, though, is going to be far greater because uh, because there's going to be someone who's going to march on Jerusalem and destroy it. And if they don't listen to my message of peace, they're going to experience that as well. They're, they're going to experience that same thing. And by the way, um, this just says, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It doesn't specify who it is. Could it be talking about God? Perhaps. But it doesn't specify that. The one who has power over death, if you think about it uh, from the uh, Hebrew writer's perspective, 
is Satan. He's the one who had the keys of, of death and Hades. And Jesus got those keys from him, of course. But I, I don't think that you can read verse 28 and think that this is just automatically talking about God when the text doesn't specifically say. Okay. Uh, the point, though, is, is this passage about the fiery Gehenna is in a context of the martyrs being vindicated um, after receiving so much persecution from their fellow brothers and sisters, from their countrymen, same, same way that Jesus did. So when you talk about fire, when you talk about outer darkness, when you talk about the Gehenna, I don't think you can separate this language from national judgment. Now, could it be talking about the afterlife? Sure. But primarily, I think, the primary reference is to a national judgment that was impending when these books were being written. And it's significant that nobody outside of, of a Jewish context uses this word. Paul writing to Gentiles never talks about Gehenna. He has a lot to say about fire. He has a lot to say about judgment, but he has nothing to say about Gehenna. He never uses the word hell. Peter never uses the word hell, even though he's writing the Jewish people. All right, let's talk a little bit more about fire, but let's change gears here and look at another uh, side of this. Fire is not just a destructive force in Scripture. Fire is a purifying force as well. In uh, Micah chapter 3, for example, in Micah chapter 3, oh, sorry, no wonder I can't find that. I'm in the wrong book. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, there is a prophecy here about John the Baptist. And he says this about the coming of the Lord in verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like, notice, a refiner's fire and like washer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Yes, he'll, be, he'll draw near to them in judgment, is what he says in verse 5. He'll draw near to them in judgment. But this is a judgment of purifying fire, of refining fire, like fuller's soap, as he says in verse 2. So when John the Baptist comes on the scene in Matthew 3, and he starts talking about fire as well, this isn't simply a destructive fire. It's a refining fire. That's the context of uh, Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 4, you have the same sort of thing here. Yes, he says he will tread down the, uh, the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet, as he says in verse 4. And then... The arrogant and the evildoers will be burned up, he says in verse 1. But notice the purpose of this in verse 4 and 5. Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances I commanded at Horeb for all Israel. See, I'll send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, who will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. Yes, there is this judgment, but there's also this salvation that takes place uh, in the same time frame. And yes, there's some who find themselves outside of the gates of the kingdom of heaven when the end comes. We're going to see that in a second. But I want you to just notice that the primary purpose of this fire, the intention of this fire, is not to, is not to destroy, but it's first and foremost to, be, uh, to refine. Now, this is why I'm a hopeful universalist and not a guaranteed whatever universalist, is because I think that it seems like some people reject that refining. Or as as uh, 
one person said, I can't remember who said this, that if once the refining fire is done with somebody, is it possible for them to be so wicked that there's nothing left when it's done? Um, perhaps that was Brian McLaren's uh, characters in The Last Word and The Word After That, which is a good book on the afterlife as well. So there's this idea of a purifying fire. The same thing is found in Hebrews chapter uh, 12. Let's take a look at this. Hebrews 12. Uh, there's this saying here about things that are shaken are removed so that, that what may not be shaken may remain. And he ends that by saying, for our God is a consuming fire, which is a callback to uh, earlier in the Bible to the book of Deuteronomy. Our God is a consuming fire. But what is it that he's consuming in the context? And, and specifically, it's the temporary things of the old, of the old covenant world and being and being uh, re revealing in that purging uh, the everlasting kingdom of God. But the whole point is, is that it's it's purging, it's it is cleansing, it's purifying, it's taking away what can be shaken, so that what is permanent may remain. Earlier in the chapter, though, listen to this. Uh, well, hang on. Let's let's <laughs> let me let me chase this fire uh, rabbit here a little bit more. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we have a similar thing taking place. He says in verse 7 that they're, they're going to have to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. He says that, yes, there is, there is a fire that's coming, but it's a testing fire. It's a purifying fire, right? Same thing is said in 1 Peter 4, by the way, just can you continue this thought. He said, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening unto you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing in Christ's sufferings, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. So this, this fire of testing, which he calls judgment in verse 17, he says, the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. The fire goes through the church, purifying the church. And he says, if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? That is, if someone undergoes this fiery ordeal, but they haven't you know, trusted in the gospel, or they don't believe in Jesus, then what's going to happen to them? Well, we'll see that in a little bit. Oh, we get to Revelation, but I want to circle back and look at a few more things about um, about Hebrews first. So there's this idea that's presented in uh, the book of Revelation. And I, I know I said we're going to go to Hebrews, and we are. <laughs> but I just want to bring this out here for a second. So there's this idea that comes out in the book of Revelation. And God says this in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline Therefore, be zealous and repent. All right, so we're switching gears talking now about discipline. But notice what he says. Those whom I love are approved in discipline. Well, who does Jesus love? Does Jesus love saints? Yeah. Does Jesus love believers? Of course. Does Jesus love his enemies? Well, that's what he told us to do, right? He said, love your enemies so that you can be sons and daughters of your father. So yeah, Jesus loves his enemies. In fact, Romans 5 said that uh, God commanded his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies. So yeah, Jesus loves his enemies. Then does Jesus reprove and discipline 
his enemies, and to what end would be the question. This is where we circle back to Hebrews 12. Take a look at this. Verse 4, the Hebrews writer says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Now, who does the Lord discipline? The Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. Who does the Lord love? The Lord loves everyone. Nor faint when you are approved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Let's keep reading this, though. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us, notice, for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to these who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, who does the Lord discipline? Revelation 3 says he disciplines the one who he loves. Hebrews 12 says the same thing. What's the purpose of God's discipline? Just for the sake of punishing him? just to get one over on them because they sin and they're bad and you got to get them. God just has to punish somebody, so he's going to get you. No, he, pun- he disciplines. Why? For our good, so that we may share in his holiness. Even the act of sending someone into outer darkness, like the, like the father sent the prodigal son into the far country to waste his wealth, like the father allowed the older brother to make a decision for himself whether or not he was going to join the party. God allows us to go our way. God God disciplines us. Not so that we'll stay out there. Not as to say, ha ha, you lose. You're you're a reprobate. You're the one I didn't choose. Nothing like that. But it's it's for our own good because it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So, so Peter, this is so exciting. So Peter says in 2 Peter 3, right? He says, God is not willing to any per- for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, he says in verse 10. In other words, yes, God is, is patient so that no one has to perish, but there's still going to be a decisive moment of judgment. That's still going to happen. But why does God bring that decisive moment of judgment? One, to fulfill his promises. There's a prophecy thing going on here. One, to, to bring his uh, blessings to those who served him and who died for him and whatnot. But it's also to bring about a time of discipline. I want to show you another passage. This is Revelation chapter 21. This is after the great white throne judgment of chapter 20. And just to point that out, at the end of chapter 20, when the great white throne judgment takes place, heaven and earth flee away. After that happens, af- oh, that was a, I, I peaked on that one, didn't I? After that happens, now there's this new Jerusalem. Now there's this new heavens and new earth. Now the tabernacle of God is among men. 
And guess what? And guess what? Jesus says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. That's Jesus' promise. These others, though, they're going to go into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Which is the second death. But remember, the Lord disciplines, not just because he can, not just because according to his pleasure, not because he, he wants to. In fact, the book of Isaiah says <laughs> that God deals in the exact, exact opposite way. I'll bring that out in a second. But he disciplines to bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness and peace and love. And notice what he says. These walls on this city are high. And there's 12 gates. And they're on the east and the west and the north and the south. And you know they're there to keep people out, right? That's what I've been taught. Is that what you've been taught as well? But guess what? He says in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. The gates of the kingdom of God will never be closed. What if somebody dies? Oh, I thought it said never be closed. <laughs> what if somebody's just wicked? Oh, just terrible. The gates will never be closed. Well, uh, my neighbor, he just doesn't even cut his grass like he should. <laughs> the gates will never be closed. What about these people that crucified Jesus? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The gates will never be closed. And notice the tree, of, the tree of life is given for the healing of the nations, which means even after the great white throne judgment in Revelation, even after the new heavens and new earth come in this story, there's still healing that needs to be done. Things aren't just automatically totally better. There's still healing. There's still people being invited into the gates. And yes, look at this. Yes, look in, in, uh, <clears throat> in uh, Revelation chapter 22. There are those, he says in verse 15, that are outside. They're outside the gates. They're dogs and sorcerers, immoral persons, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices lying. Yeah, there's people outside the gate. But those gates are never shut. And whoever's willing to wash their robe, then they can have the right to eat of the tree of life, and they can enter by the gates into the city. In fact, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The price don't go up after the great white throne judgment in Revelation. There's not an increase. The queue is not, <laughs> it's not full. It's not like an online Zoom class you can take where there's only so many slots available. The gates are never shut. Yes, most people choose the path of destruction. Jesus said that in Matthew 7. Yes, most people don't live in a fellowship with God, in fellowship with God. Even most Christians don't live in fellowship with God. They're way too attached to their cell phones to do that. I know I have been. But guess what? God disciplines those who he loves. And God so loved the world. I don't see Jesus giving up on anybody. I don't see him giving up on anybody. I want to share with you a passage. To me, this is just beautiful. And uh, this is one, I preached it a few weeks ago uh, about God's wrath. And uh, that was so much fun. <laughs> Uh, preaching about God's wrath. I haven't done that in that way ever, and it was a blast. But I got this manuscript online that I thought that uh, that I thought people might like to read. 
And yeah, here's uh, here's some ideas from it. Uh, let's see. Whoopsie daisy. I just uh, closed it out on accident. Well, hang on. I think I have the wrong. Oopsie daisy. I just closed out the whole thing. This is a disaster. Anyways, there's a passage in Isaiah that talks about God's wrath versus God's compassion. And I think that's why I pulled up the wrong thing is because I meant to start off on the compassion one. Yeah, here we go. This is Isaiah 54, 7 and 8. Listen to this. Listen to the hope. For a brief moment, I forsook you. God's talking to Israel here. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Yes, there's a remnant, but he's not talking about the remnant here. <laughs> he's talking about those who he had wrath towards, who he had anger towards. He forsook them for a moment. See, forsaking for a moment, great compassion for an eternity. How about that? What about Hosea 11? Listen to this. Now, the northern tribes, they were cons completely swallowed up by the Gentiles. I mean, that's just about as hopeless of a situation as you can get. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the bells and burning incense to the idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. It is I who took him in my arms. But they did not know that I healed them, he says. Assyria, he tells them, are going to be their king. But then he says this, verse 8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? He says at the end of the passage, My heart is turned over in me. My compassion, all my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man. I'm not a mortal. I'm the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a, like a lion. Indeed, he will roar. And his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Why? Ephraim surrounds me with lies. The house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. And yet, what does he say? When he saw how Assyria treated Israel, his, his heart was turned over within him. His compassions were kindled. As soon as they got out the door, there he is waiting on them again. There he is calling them back to himself. He says, I'm not going to execute my fierce anger. Man, what an idea. What an idea, this God of compassion. There's a passage from Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion? For the child of her womb, even these might forget, yet I will not forget you. Come on. That's it. You want to talk about the afterlife? We're talking about a God who doesn't forget us. We're talking about a God who doesn't give up on us. We're talking about a God who loves us endlessly and wants a relationship with us. In pursuit of us. Yes, our, our podcast might be called Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. I'm not going to pursue grace anymore. I'm done. You know why? I don't have to. Because the grace is already inside of me. In fact, Paul told those Athenians in Acts 17 that God is not far from each one of us. So who am I pursuing when he's right there 
and he's been there the whole time. To me, that's a that's a message worth preaching. That's some good news. That is your afterlife. That is your afterlife stuff. The gates will never be shut. We'll end on that. Hey, a couple thoughts before we go. Kevin Pendergrass is going to join me next Thursday. Uh, he's been having some problems with his internet, so we're not sure when we can make the recording. But the idea is, is that his podcast will post next Thursday. But if not, you'll probably uh, get me again or maybe get nothing. <laughs> it just depends on how the cards fall. Then my friend Sherry, she's going to join us to talk about what she's up to at the Christ Church Episcopal Church in uh, Albertville, Alabama. And then who knows after that? Who knows? It's open waters. We're going to have fun, though. If you'd like to, by the way, you can go listen to my audio book. Go to danielr.net backslash book, and you can download it there. It's $9 right now. The, the audio book is. It's finally got up to $9. I've got four more chapters left to post. When I finish posting those chapters, it'll be $15. So if you want to purchase the whole thing for $9, including the chapters that are to come, then you can do that right now. So that's about that. I hope you all have a great day. Thanks for joining me again. Again, have have some patience with me. I'm just uh, I'm just a, a 30 year old kid trying to understand the 66 books of the Bible that take you know <laughs> multiple months to read through all the way. So cut me some slack, Jack. Y'all have a great day and God bless.